Matthew 6, I'm in a series on healing a divided heart. And of course, the theme for this year, as you know, is full. But I've been talking about where we live. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. In fact, let me just stop. There are different translations. This is the new King James. Um, the old King James would say, our Father which art in heaven. And uh, hallowed be thy name. This is the newer King James. It's written in modern English, our vernacular, but true to the King James. And there's so many others you can read it from. And so when people pray the Lord's Prayer, they use different forms. Let's read this together. I want you to read it with me. In this manner, therefore, now pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name or your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And not, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I want to particularly look today at verse 13. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The King James in the original said, deliver us from evil. There is an evil one. A couple of Sundays ago, I preached about the eye that is behind the idol, or the eye in the idol, the personality, the spirit that is really behind the things that attract us and lure us and try to entice us to do wrong. I'm now turning to the Gospel of John chapter 8. Beginning in verse 3, and I'll read a number of verses, but they're brief, so it won't take but a moment. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. A couple of things. One, when I read this, I always wonder, where was the guy? It takes two to tango, like they say. And if they were caught in the act, where's the fellow? Second thing is, I want you to notice that it, there are no euphemisms used here. Doesn't say they slipped, they made a mistake. Doesn't say they had an affair. They don't soften it at all. The scripture says they were caught in adultery. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Hmm. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her these remarkable words. 
neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This passage is actually incomplete if you don't read this last verse. Because what Jesus is actually addressing when he says, neither do I condemn you, he doesn't condemn the emptiness on the inside because every person is born, as you've heard me say before, quoting the French mathematician philosopher Pascal, you're born with a God-shaped vacuum or emptiness within. It's what Viktor Frankl, the concentration camp survivor, the psychologist and urologist, Viktor Frankl, and the founder of logotherapy called the existential vacuum that exists within every person. It's what I described recently, quoting from another person, as the, the sound of the howling, uh, the sound that speaks louder than the howling wind. Inside of you there is an emptiness. And Jesus says, I don't condemn that. But go and sin no more. Now how are you going to go and sin no more? This is why the next verse is necessary. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What he's saying is, I'm what you're looking for. Only I can fill up the emptiness on the inside, the darkness within you. I'm the only one that can do that. And you've heard me say before that one of the major problems that I have in helping families sometimes in counseling understand they don't need to get a divorce. They need to work things out. Is to understand that many times what happens in a relationship, even if you're not married and you're in a relationship, you try to make the other person feel up what only God can feel in your heart. And so a husband will say, after 25 years of marriage, I'm not happy. And I ask what's going on. Well, she just doesn't satisfy, doesn't make me feel fulfilled. And I say, she wasn't supposed to. Only God can fill up the God part of that emptiness. She can't be God to you. Neither can he be God to you either, ma'am. And we try to feel this that is empty with what only God can feel. And so it's important in life to know this. Because it helps you develop a workable strategy. I often begin my sermons by pointing out that you need in life strategies that work. It's remarkable the number of people that will engage in employing a strategy that doesn't work. So when I counsel, I ask people, what is your end game? What is it you're trying to accomplish? Do you want to prove yourself right or do you want to save the marriage? Which is most important to you? Amen. Because a lot of times, you know, they haven't thought that through and they're trying to make their point. And the other person's trying to make their point. And both of them can be half right and half wrong. You understand what I mean? Amen. Somebody said marriage is a 50-50 proposition. Amen. You give her all the money and take whatever she wants to do with it. Amen. 50-50. Put up with it. No, I learned one of the secrets to a long marriage is to choose what you fight over. Not everything is worth creating a world war. I wish I could hear an amen. 
especially from some of the couples that have been married for a while. That's right. So you need a strategy in life that will work. And uh, it's like the little boy who called the pastor of the local corner church to ask the pastor to come by and pray for his mother who had been very ill. And the pastor came and prayed and then invited the family to attend the church when the mother was better. And the little boy replied, well, we're members of another church. And he named the church and said, we're going to be going back there as soon as mom recovers. And the pastor was puzzled and asked, well, since you're members there, shouldn't you have been asking Pastor Simon to come pray for your mom instead of me? And the little boy replied, no, we thought about it, but we didn't want to take the chance that he might catch whatever mom has. So we called you. Amen. (laughs) You need to think your strategy through. And that's what I want to do today. I've been talking to us about our human weaknesses and failures. I want to speak this morning from the subject, go and sin no more. Moving beyond your failures. I also keep pointing out that I think the Bible is the most incredible book that has ever been written. I really do. It's an amazing book. I love this book because it not only tells us how to live our lives in such a manner that we, our families, our ministries, our businesses, whatever we're doing, can be the most blessed and fulfilled. It also tells us, are you listening, how to get back on track when we have derailed and fallen. We don't want it to ever happen, but everyone needs to know how to recover should your internal programming crash. And that happens. And you find yourself doing things you never thought you would do. The question today is how do you move beyond your struggle? And I want you to think of yourself as a computer right now. Anybody ever have a computer that caught a virus? And look at all the hands. I like I, Apple products because they're reputed to resist viruses more than some of the other technology that's out there. But I had a message appear on my iPhone this week that I had four viruses that came into my iPhone. And I'm always researching on my iPhone, and I have no idea if that was a scam, phishing expedition, you know, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, where they're trying to get me to click on something to be able to get to whatever I've got in my phone. I, I don't know. And I get all these emails, and a lot of them I, I refuse to open because you don't know what's in some of those things. Amen. And if you've ever had a computer virus, that's no fun. I want you to think of yourself as a computer today. And what I'm about to share with you as the code that the programmer is going to install that will cleanse the virus from you. If you follow these steps this morning, it will induce a change in your life. But you must want to change. And I have to tell you that up front. I'll begin today by saying that fortunately the Bible isn't a book for people who are perfect, amen, but rather for those who are keenly aware that they aren't perfect and who realize they stand in need of more grace than they deserve. Is there anybody in this house that needs more grace than they deserve? Now, you probably know that whenever I meet you, because I see you often, and this is my, my church family. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. 
Amen. You probably know that whenever you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to say blessed and highly favored. But if I haven't seen you for a long time, I have a standard response. You know what it is when people ask me how I'm doing? Like many of my minister friends, I don't get to see. But once every 10 years or so, we're all busy. And when I see them, they ask, how you doing? I always say this, much better than I deserve. If it wasn't for the grace of God. Amen. If you've listened to me preach very many times, you probably know that I love a line from an old Clint Eastwood movie that's entitled Unforgiven, the movie. Anybody ever see the movie, the Western Unforgiven? Somebody told me it was on last night after I mentioned this in the first service. I wish I'd known because it is my favorite all-time Western. In a very gritty and stark way, it describes for me the overwhelming grace of God. Clint Eastwood plays a really bad gunman who met a woman that he fell in love with, who fell in love with him and loved him into being a better person. You never get somebody to change by trying to get them to change. By pointing out their flaws. Oh, you're getting quiet already. Boy, I must be preaching this morning. Amen. Amen. You get them to change by loving them and enabling them to become who they're supposed to be. That's what God did for every one of us. And I see something redemptive in that movie. Someone tells Clint Eastwood that a woman somewhere in another place has been injured by a couple of guys. Unfortunately, the woman that loved him into being a better man has died of a fever and left him with small children and in desperate need of money. So he and his friend, Morgan Freeman, and the guy who told them about the job, go to fulfill the contract to make these guys pay for having hurt this woman. In the Old West, and it used to be this way all around the world, women were respected. You did not dishonor women. You didn't. I think it's tragic the way that, well, our society has changed in ways that is destructive. And in an effort to have equal rights, some people have just absolutely lowered the respect that all women get. And I think it's tragic. I really, really do. I wish that women would say amen right now. Because I am for women being treated right. And so they had violated this woman and injured her. And now they are going to go correct the deed because the sheriff of that town is protecting these guys and he's corrupt. Morgan Freeman gets beaten to death by the cruel and sadistic sheriff who in the movie is called Little Bill Daggett. And he's played by one of the great character actors of all times, Gene Hackman. And somehow... That awakens that old man that used to be dead inside of Clint Eastwood. And he, it, it wakes up whatever that was he once was. And the, he becomes the gunslinger again. And he rides into town to make somebody pay. And of course, he writes the wrong and confronts little Bill Daggett. And as little Bill Daggett is lying on the floor dying, in the saloon, he looks up at Clint Eastwood 
And he says, I don't deserve to die like this. And Clint Eastwood, in his inimitable way, curls up his lip and snarls, deserves got nothing to do with it. I like that line so much. I know my wife wouldn't let me and you think I'm crazy. I wouldn't mind having that put on my tombstone when I die 50 years from now. Deserves had nothing to do with it. God has been good to me. Amen. I wish I could hear somebody say, Amen. I haven't got what I deserve. Thank God for that. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Clint Eastwood's character went on to settle down again and start a thriving business in San Francisco, or so the movie informs us. And that's you and me. Far from perfect, with a lot of stuff buried in our past, that if it weren't for the grace of God, our dark nature would overwhelm us. And I mentioned this story for a reason. Because just like something woke up that old man that was dead inside of Clint Eastwood, every once in a while, if you're not careful, you're going to find that old nature is still kicking around and stirring. Everybody stumbles. And everybody needs to know how to recover. The Bible is actually filled with stories of those we have been privileged to see. Not who were at their best, but also who were also, as I mentioned, they were in their weakest times, their weakest moments. Not as they should have been, but as they were. Not perfect, but imperfect. Unvarnished. And we're allowed to see that in the Bible, that we can better appreciate the grace of God that every one of us need on a daily basis. To become who we're called to be in Christ. I consider Noah, who having found grace in the eyes of God, built an ark that saved the only survivors from the flood. And no sooner does he get out of the ark than he throws a survivor's party and gets fall down, cross-eyed, slapped stilly, drunk. There's Moses, the only Hebrew male to turn 40 years of age the year it came into his heart to go visit his brethren, the children of Israel, in bondage. He had been raised in Pharaoh's palace. And when he goes to visit his Hebrew brethren, he sees an Egyptian mistreating one of them and he kills him. We certainly can't forget David, the shepherd king and giant killer whom God, who God himself declared to be a man after his own heart who ended up having an affair with his best friend's wife and killed his best friend to cover it up. There's Jeremiah. You expect preachers to be strong and unshakable, but Jeremiah got to the point, he got so discouraged, he said, I'm never going to preach again because of the hardness of people's hearts. But later he said he couldn't hold his peace. It was like fire shut up in his bones. Suppose because of his mistake, his discouragement, his decision to not obey God, that God said, sorry, you're disqualified. The list of less than perfect heroes that God helped to recover continues not just through the Old Testament, 
But even into the New Testament as well, we find Peter, the one chosen by God to be one of the twelve who would deliver the message on the day of Pentecost that would, that would open the door to the church and countless hundreds of millions and even billions have been saved since then. But Peter, on the night that they come to arrest his Lord, draws a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest who is a part of the party who is arresting Jesus. And I can promise you he wasn't aiming for his ear either. They hadn't ducked at just the right time. Amen. He, that guy would have lost his head. He even later curses and denies that he knows Christ. And in what is perhaps the most famous and well-known parable in the Bible, the parable of the prodigal son, we find this addressed directly by God. For he pictures the son leaving and the father sitting on the porch until one day he looks out and sees what might be his son coming. And Aristotle said that it was the custom in those days that great men did not run. But this old dad got up and pulled up his robes and took off running down the road to greet that boy and fell upon him. And the actual translation is a little bit Missing, it says he kissed him, but it really says in the Greek is he kissed him much. That dad was so glad to see that boy come home. This and all of these other stories give us insight, not into just the nature of God, but insight into ourselves. We're individuals who were created flawed. And we have a a broken nature and we live in a broken world. And by God's grace, we have been saved. But don't for a minute think that there isn't within this flesh the capability of doing things that are wrong. And I want to talk today about how do you recover when you've messed up? How do you go on? How do you go and sin no more? And the question is, what do you do? Is it even worth the effort to try? The most beloved Psalms in all of the Bible is the 23rd Psalms. Even literary critics critics in the secular world declare it to be one of the greatest passages of literature ever written. It's written by David, and this is what he had to say in verse 3. He, God, restores my soul and leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is no doubt autobiographical on David's part. And David is writing from his own experience when he says, He restores my soul. He was the one who had committed that crime with Bathsheba and ultimately killed her husband to cover it up. The Hebrew word restore means to return to the starting point or to its beginning or in other words, to make new again. David said, God, has made my heart new. And he not only says that, but he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And this is extremely important because to live an overcoming life, you need to stop looking at salvation as a destination. Well, I got that done, got that taken care of, tick that off my bucket list. What you need to realize is, yes, you're saved, but righteousness is a process. I wish I could hear an amen. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness. It's a process. To live an overcoming life, you have to understand that. All of us come into the kingdom of God struggling with issues. Yes, we do. Every single one of us. You've heard me say before that, you know, and really I'm I'm being transparent when I tell you this. I have an addictive personality. I do. Anything I do, I'm going to do 10,000%. Rule number one. If you are struggling with a problem, don't try to overcome that problem. Transfer it to something that is good. You cannot conquer an addictive personality. If you're addicted, get addicted to the right things. Have you read where the Bible said they were addicted to the ministry of the saints? That's me. I'm addicted to ministry. I love this book. I love to minister. I'm always preaching somewhere because that's what I was created to do. And I'm not happy unless I'm working in this place of calling. Because I know who I am. I can't do anything halfway. I can't. When it was smoking. Oh, Lord. That was how many of you guys ever struggled to give up cigarettes? That was the single hardest thing I ever did in my life. I'm serious. I got saved and they said, you've heard me say this, that you got to stop smoking. So I quit cold turkey. I deserve a medal. (laughs) It was hard. With my personality. And then they said, you got to witness to people. Go back and witness to your unsafe friends. I actually love that part because I could get out and witness. Hey, have you heard about the, they're smoking and I'm breathing it in. Let me, you need to get baptized. <laughs> I'm glad my addiction wasn't alcohol. Though when I drank, I didn't know how to drink part way. I didn't. I drink a whole fifth. I'm serious. By myself, tequila, the hard stuff. I'd tell you how to do it, but I'm afraid you'd try it, so I'm not even going to tell you. <laughs> serious. I didn't know how to be halfway at anything. And my personality was geared that way. I woke up in the morning. And I was thinking about the stuff I was addicted to and thought about it all during the day and thought about it when I went to bed. And that was the last thought I had at night. And you know what? Now, when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about him the very first thing. And I think about him all during the day. And he's the last thought on my mind when I go to bed. And I realized that God gave me a personality where I could be addicted to the presence of God. That's what was really happening. I don't want to lose that. You just have to turn your addictions to the right things. John in his gospel tells us the story of a woman taken in the act of adultery. Certainly in the minds of the Pharisees. Who brought her to Jesus. There was nothing worthy of redemption or restoration in her. But I thank God Jesus didn't feel that way. He said go and sin no more. Sin is self-destructive. When you 
give in to the desire to sin. You're choosing to destroy your own life. And generally and usually speaking, it's not just your life that you destroy. You destroy others around you. Proverbs 8.36 says, if you wrong me, that's God's instruction. You damage your very soul. When you reject me, you're flirting with death. Did you see that? You damage your soul. You say, Pastor, why are you preaching stuff like this? Because a recent survey revealed that 64% of Christian men in the United States of America view pornography each month. 64%. People struggle. And I don't preach what I preach to condemn you. I want to give you a strategy to help you go and sin no more and get beyond the issues. When you learn to recover from self-destruction and doing so is a process, you will recover because you recognize who your enemies actually are. Your enemy is not the person trying to get you to do right. You have three enemies that are triple teaming you every day. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world wars around you, the flesh wars within you, and Satan wars against you. And of the three, guess which one the biggest is? It's not the world and it's not the devil. It's you. Amen. T.D. Jake said it many years ago. He preached a sermon, the enemy in a me. Enemy in me. Amen. And you can't run away from this one. Somebody says, I'm going to Hawaii. Guess who you take him with you? Amen. Because like the old saying goes, no matter where you are, there you are. And I'm not talking about when I say you're taking your enemy with you, your wife or your husband. I'm talking about you. You can never stop the flesh from warring within you. You can never stop the world from warring around you. And you can never stop Satan from warring against you. And what you need to understand is of the three, the world and the devil most often succeed when they partner and conspire to work with your flesh and by targeting your fleshly appetites. Most of our unhappiness in life is because we listen to our flesh rather than to God. To recover when you fail and to go and sin no more, you need to learn there are eight weapons of self-destruction that your fleshly nature uses against you that the world and the devil will partner with your flesh in a strategy to try to get you to fail. They are, and I'm going to go through these pretty quickly, shame. Self-destructive thoughts, number two. Number three, compulsions. And by that, I mean the inner drives and desires that you feel you must give in to. If you've ever dealt with people and their weaknesses, they will tell you, I just, I, 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 I couldn't stop. I didn't feel like I could stop myself. It's very, very common. Compulsions. The fourth is fear. If you can be made to live in fear, fear of the future, fear of a relationship, not surviving, fear of this cancer, fear of what loss of a job, the enemy and the world can 
cause you to do something that will make you self-destruct. Despair or hopelessness is the fifth. Because people without hope are people that will be desperate in their grasp for straws. Number six, resentment, which is bitterness. And I'm reminded of the text in Hebrews, lest any root of bitterness springing up defile you and whereby many be defiled. Because you see, there are very few people in this building today that do not have something in their past where somebody hurt you, walked on you, stepped on you. Somebody you trusted injured you and wounded you. Number seven, there's pride, arrogance. And number eight, low self-esteem. Everyone has to deal with these eight weaknesses within us that are a product of our fallen nature. And so whenever you begin to deal with these, you need to realize this. Some of us deal with some of those more successfully than do others. That is, I might be real strong in the first four, but struggle with the fifth or the sixth or the seventh. And on the other hand, you might be weak in the first one or two and strong in the others. And what you should never do in the body of Christ is look at your neighbor out of the corner of your eye and judge them because every one of us are trying to recover from one of these things right now. Oh, I wish I could hear somebody say amen. So the question then becomes, how do I deal with shame? I must remind myself daily what Jesus did for me. How do I conquer unwanted thoughts? How do I overcome compulsions? How can I overcome fear? How can I overcome despair? How do I conquer bitterness? How do I address pride? How do I deal with insecurity? These are the things that you have to learn strategies to address. And every single one of these things makes us feel uncomfortable and uneasy inside. And I want to introduce a word to you. You already know it, but I want to use it in this context. Because when you experience those eight things I just mentioned, you begin to feel self-loathing. You don't like yourself. And you feel unloved. And these are the things that cause us pain. And when we're hurting, we seek relief. You might ask why it is that we are prone to have these struggles. And my answer is, did you forget we're made of dirt? (laughs) Our fallen nature, we're not made of silver and certainly not gold, but dirt. And here's what dirt is. Dirt is disappointment. It is insecurity. It is rejection. It is temptation. And that is the story of the human being's existence right there. The story of our lives. There are five major core concerns in life everyone must deal with until they're resolved. And until these weaknesses are resolved, they will continue to throw you from time to time. And for some of us, they throw people all the time. Underneath those eight things that I just mentioned, there is a root. There's a core. Have you ever been to West Texas and seen prairie dog towns? Anybody ever seen prairie? Some of you have. Okay. There can be hundreds of little holes, right? That doesn't mean there's hundreds of prairie dogs. Because where that little fellow pops up is not where he lives. When you take a step toward him, 
down in that hole he goes and he goes through a tunnel to another part of the prairie dog village and pops up again. And he's, he doesn't even live at either of those two places. He actually lives in a den or a lair somewhere else under the ground. But he shows up here. And that is what problems in life do. They have roots underneath. And just because they pop up here doesn't mean that's where the problem is at. Just because you're having trouble in your marriage doesn't mean your marriage is bad. It's you've got a root down there. Oh, I'm talking to you right now. Just because you can't handle finances doesn't mean that you're cursed. You've got a problem down there. And here are the five problems that are underneath the eight things that I just gave you that are self-destructive. Number one, who am I? And that is the struggle to determine your identity. Number two, where did I come from? And that's your heritage. And number three, does my life matter? And that's a question of dignity. And number four, what is my purpose? And this has to do with authority. Because when you know your purpose, that's where your authority is released. And number five, where am I going both in life and for eternity? And that has to do with destiny. Those five questions are underneath every single struggle that we as human beings have. For example... Who am I? Most of us were named by problems. People named us. Friends named us in school. Supposed to be friends. Teacher named us. Dad named us. Aunt named us. I'm talking to you right now. You'll never amount to anything. Boy, why are you so dense? You'll never get ahead with your life. Oh, And these things wound us to our very core. And this is why there are so many people that are struggling with different things and issues like what I'm talking about in this series. Is they're wounded on the inside and they're attempting to anesthetize pain. The second question is, where did I come from? And you hear me say this from time to time. But this is why I personally think that the teaching of the theory of evolution is one of the most diabolical strategies ever conceived in hell. I don't care if your professor told you it's not a theory. It is a theory. They have nothing conclusive to prove it. I do believe in adaptive biology. That is, if you are raised, a horse grows in Iceland, it's going to grow a longer coat than one raised in Houston, Texas. I believe in all of that. But they don't change into a bird. You hear what I'm talking about. And whenever you teach the theory of evolution as fact, what we have done for four generations as we have stripped away the God-given identity that people are made in the image of Almighty God and they're special and they carry His likeness. They have the stamp of God upon their lives. And you raise these kids in isolation with their video games and Facebook and Instagram. And they don't even know how to communicate each other 
with each other anymore and they don't have any friends and they feel lonely and they're down in the basement learning how to shoot on these video games and the next thing you know you got a kid that says I don't know who I am and if I don't if I'm just slime that watched up on a beach if I'm just the byproduct of evolutionary forces my life will never amount to anything and I can't accept that and he gets a gun and goes and shoots up a school and says I'm going to show the world who I am because the only heroes they have right now are evil let me preach the way that I want to preach they're not promoting godly values the Kardashians and all all of that mess out there Where these kids don't even know what what godly heroes are anymore. They say, I'll make my life count. And the only way they know how to do it is go out and. Number three, does my life matter? And that's a matter of dignity. Number four, what is my purpose? And I want you to know that you're, you have a purpose in life. You may not have found it yet, but you have a purpose in life. And number five, where am I going? Both in life and for eternity. You don't answer the other four, you'll never find out where you're going. Amen. And on the eternity part of it, hey, I got great news. <laughs> We're going to be with him forever someday. So... That's my destiny. Hallelujah. We shall see him as he is. We shall behold him. Somebody shout hallelujah. People are confused about these five things. And they are at the root of every single struggle we have in the flesh. And flesh is flesh. It will always be flesh. You'll have to deal with it. The enemy is always going to be the enemy. And the world is always going to be the world. But if you can resolve those five questions right there, you can deal with these eight things that are so self-destructive in your life. Five is the number of grace. Amen. And you will never walk in the full measure of the grace of God that he wants you to experience until you answer those five questions successfully. And answering these five also will determine the measure of resources that you will be given in life. They will resolve the question of prosperity. Because when you know who you are in Christ, that God created and sent you into the world to bring him glory, that God loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son for you, that he created you to achieve certain kingdom objectives, and you know that you're going to spend eternity in his presence, you are unstoppable. Amen. And after all, how can God give you prosperity and resources when you don't even know who you are? Or why you're here, or where you came from? You'll use those resources to further your own self-destruction. If you do not resolve these five issues correctly, Satan will use one of two strategies over and over again against you. And I'm going to close with this. One is he will try to get you to avoid pain by choosing short-term pleasure. Anybody know this guy? That's Russell Brand. He's a British comedian, TV personality, actor, was married to Kate Perry. His life was a mess of addictions, drugs, alcohol, sex, the whole thing. I'm reading a book right right now by him that I can't recommend to you. 
Because as it turns out, after I got the book, he's very profane. Uses words I don't like to hear used. But believe it or not, he is a strong advocate and has even debated Richard Dawkins that there is a God. He believes in God. He said he believes in God because God's the only reason he's still alive. He'd be dead right now because of his addictions. He's in a 12-step program. And the book he's written is about 12-step programs. And speaking of his addictions, I want you to listen to see if there's anybody in this building that identifies with this that he says. He is very articulate. I can't recommend his book because, as I said, I didn't know, but he uses a lot of profanity. That's their culture in the UK these days too, by the way, and much of the world. Speaking of his addictions, he said, I was in pain. As long as I can remember, I didn't feel good enough. Now I'm a little older, I think, what does that mean? Good enough? Compared to what? When? Where? How? Back then in my gurgling and nervous childhood and rash and frenetic teens, I just felt inadequate, incomplete, not good enough, and it hurt. I looked out at the world as if from within an aquarium, and it felt lonely. I also had no technique for addressing that feeling, so I had to invent some. I have never in my life, I want to show you how transparent I'm being, never had anybody describe so exactly the feeling I had growing up as what I've just read to you. I was the guy looking at everybody else through the wall of the aquarium, alone, empty. Anybody else felt that way? A lot of people did. So how did he deal with this pain? He said, I used an addictive agent, and in my earliest coronation, incarnation of addictive behavior, I used the innocuous toxin sugar. Chocolate, food. He said, there's no point in demonizing chocolate biscuits. And for those of us in the U.S., in the U.K., chocolate biscuits mean chocolate cookies. They of themselves, he said, are not the problem. They won't of their own volition kick down your front door, shine a flashlight in your face as you sleep, drag you from your bed and jam themselves down your throat. That was me. My earliest addiction was sugar too. Pecan pie. I'm not talking about that stuff they call pecan pie that you buy in the store that's so dry you got to drink something to be able to get it down. I'm talking about pecan pie from Louisiana where it's got that much feeling and it's pure cane syrup. And when you take a bite, your whole body just goes into... I would eat a piece of that and it made me feel good. I could eat a whole pie by myself. I'm not making that. I told you I didn't do anything halfway. I would start out with one piece and I'd graduate to two and three and, and then the whole pie would be gone. Now I had a technique. I wasn't getting as many calories as if you ate the whole pie because I wouldn't eat the crust. I just ate the filling and the pecans. It's all about technique. I was destroying myself. 
The first of this year, when we went on a fast, I fasted for 30 days without sugar. Then I went 90. And it broke the hold of sugar on me. And I feel myself slowly being sucked back toward pecan pie again. And I'm going to have to go on another sugar fast. Because you don't break addictions. You just transfer them to something good. I'm preaching to you right now. Brand went on to say the instinct that drives the compulsion is universal. It is an attempt to solve the problem of disconnection, alienation, and tepid despair. That's exactly right. That's exactly what is underneath an addiction. Whether it's sugar, drugs, sex. You give in to sin and all the while you're feeling guilty and you're hating yourself for it. And he describes the cycle of addiction. There's the original pain of life itself. And do you know that's actually a theological term, original pain? It's the pain that every human being is born with because of the emptiness we have on the inside. What, as I mentioned, Viktor Frankl called the existential vacuum. The noise that screams louder than the howling wind in every person. The God-shaped emptiness inside all of us. That's the original pain of life. Fallen nature. We lost something. And so what do you do? Here's the thing you need to know. Every addict, every person that falls think they're unique. My situation is worse than anybody else's. And they always say that. I'm struggling. I'm in pain. Guess what? The whole world is. The whole world struggles in pain until now. That's what Paul wrote. You have to stop looking at yourself as the only one that's hurting. Everybody else is. You're just hurting in one of those eight areas. And maybe your friend isn't hurting in that area, but he's hurting in number seven. You're struggling. So there's the original pain and how do you deal with it? If you're like me, if you're like Russell Brand... You like others, you start using an addictive agent like alcohol, food, sex, work, dependent relationships to soothe and distract. And this brings temporary anesthesia or distraction. And the pain goes away for a little while. But then guess what happens? Step number four. Afterwards, you have to deal with the consequences. Let's see, what did I do? And that produces What? More pain because it gives you shame and guilt and it leads to low self-esteem. So now you've got to figure out a way to anesthetize that pain and that is the cycle of addiction. You give in to sin and all the while you give in, you're feeling guilty and you're hating yourself for it. I loathe myself. Why did I eat the whole pecan pie? I'm going to have to do a thousand push-ups tomorrow and a thousand sit-ups and crunches and just to compensate. And I'm going to have to run 10 miles. I just, and then you do it again. Now, here's the deal. Most of us, when it comes to food, we don't judge people. But it's the very same force underneath the person that is driven to overeat that's actually the, driving some people, their method of dealing with their pain was to drink 
Now you see the problem and the church. We haven't ever dealt with stuff like this. Now I'm done. Would you stand with me? I said there were two, two strategies the enemy would use. I'll and stand with me if you would, please. And I want you to come and join me in prayer. I'll have to finish this next week. The second strategy the enemy uses is he seeks to have us, have us avoid delayed gratification. Everybody say delayed gratification. You know what that means? That means you don't have to have it right now. And do you know the problem with every single person that struggles in sin is they feel like what they're doing they have to do right now. Come on, help me out. Right now. I'm going to talk real plain to you as I close. You don't have to have sex right now. It's not going to kill you if you don't have sex. You say, but you know, my relationship hasn't been working out and things are pretty cold in the bedroom and you don't, it's not going to kill you. I promise you, you you're not going to die. Are, are you listening to me? It's getting real quiet in here right now. Like some, so you don't know whether to say, oh my God, did he say that in church? Or I, I can't figure out, are you sitting out there saying, I will die, pastor, I will. I, I know <laughs> you're not going to die. Amen. It won't kill you if you don't have that extra biscuit. Oh, Lord, have mercy. It won't kill you if you don't go to that website. It won't. You won't hate yourself after it's over. You'll feel better about yourself. Father, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Create in us a godly heart. Teach us how to follow you. How to overcome the weaknesses that we struggle with, every single one of us have areas in our life. Maybe it's anger. But Lord, whatever it is, I pray that you will make us strong in you because in Christ alone we stand. By your grace we stand. And Lord, really, none of us deserve the grace of God. And so I thank you for amazing grace. Deserves really don't have anything to do with it. You loved us so much that you called us. We're children of God. We carry your name. We have your spirit living within us. You were created. We were created by you. You created us to be powerful, to make a mark in this world, to do something for God. And we're watching the world around us fall apart because people don't understand these things. And yet they're right in the scripture. The answers are there. Help us to turn to your word, Lord. And lead us and guide us. Let your word be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Let us stand upon the solid rock of the word of God. Where we are not shaken and be strong. 
Teach us to abide in the presence of God. Teach us to live in the holy place, to be worshipers, to have relationship with you in Jesus' name. Forgive us where we failed you. I pray that because, Lord, I sense that at this season in Christian Tabernacle, you're calling us to a deeper commitment and walk. And I ask you to cleanse us and forgive us. Create within us a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within us. David said you restored his soul. And Lord, I'm praying for souls to be restored. People to go and sin no more. People to leave this place and be strong and have strategies they can employ and embrace that will help them to be victorious for God. I ask it in the name of Jesus where the pain can be broken where they can find out how much they really do matter to you, Lord. They do have an identity. They do have worth. Amen.